So like I was just like putzing around the castle for a while. Like this is fun, killing all these things. Welcome to Marginally Significant. My name is Andrew Smith, and I'm here with Andrew Monroe. I'm the funny one. <laughs> Twyla Wingrove. Hello. And Chris Holden. Hey. Um, on today's episode, we're going to be talking about um, open science, specifically focusing on diversity in open science and whether open science is open for everyone. Um, but before we get into that, uh, I want to talk a little bit about our summer. So we're just coming off of the summer, uh, started up classes about a week ago. And so um, how was the summer? How productive were you guys? Were you as productive as you wanted to be? Get all those uh, articles submitted that you planned on doing, you know, your, your to-do list and so on? Or how'd that go? It went. It went. <laughs> it went very quickly. Yeah. I was as productive as I wanted to be. But I just didn't want to be all that productive. All right. Why not, Slacker? Uh, I, I, spent, I spent a solid amount of time in a fanciful kingdom called Hyrule <laughs> and uh, discovering different types of cooking recipes and how they help you beat monsters. So, uh-huh. yeah, yeah, that, that was a time suck, but... And you decorated your little house. Oh, yeah, yeah. I also bought a house, uh, again, in the fanciful kingdom of Hyrule <laughs> and decorated it. Yeah. So, but I also like got two papers submitted. So, oh, a little good. column A, a little column B. Yeah. It's better than me. I only got one. So, and I had like on the docket to get to three. So, you know, that was percentage wise, I'm not looking so good. <laughs> Set those expectations high. Yeah. I, although I did, I mean, I, well, I told you this a long time ago. I, I did intentionally set it high knowing I would not get to all three of right. them. But I just was like, if I could just get closer. But I, is that a reach goal then? If like you know that you're not going to reach it? That's true. Yeah. yeah that way, how does that influence my? motivation if I know I'm not going to yeah. get to that goal, so why even do it? I set, I set my expectations a bit more modestly. I'm like, mm-hmm. I have these smaller ones. And then then I started playing Breath of the Wild and then they were all all kicked out of the window. <laughs> I think two papers is pretty yeah. impressive. Yeah, I think that's good. I'd say that's I solid. agree. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I did something similar, though. I set, like, kind of reach goals mm-hmm. and didn't obtain those, but did what I wanted to. And I decorated the actual house because okay, I just moved into a new house. That's yeah. way more important. Yeah. yeah. Decorated and painted. Yeah. I wanted to get the manuscript that Monroe and I are working on in good mm. shape and I failed to do so. So I apologize to you, <laughs> but you Dr. Monroe. You came You came to Asheville and we hung out though. <laughs> that's and that, that's worth. That's worth so many more and manuscripts. We, <laughs> yeah. That's what I like to think. And we did make very good progress on our follow-up stuff. Study. Yes. It's best to start a new study. <laughs> yeah. Right on the old one. It's way more fun. <laughs> it's way more fun. Put them all together in one paper. Yeah. yeah. One giant monograph. Yeah. Just call it research. That's the title. Yeah. Just, <laughs> my life's work. My <laughs> life's work. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, should we get to the main topic here? Sure. Sure. All right. So um, I think this topic, I mean, Twilight, you kind of came up with the idea, but a lot of this came out of um, recent discussions on Twitter, but also um, in kind of other areas of people talking about diversity. So um, Sanjay Surastava in his, um, I think it was the SIPs, what? Presidential, Presidential address. Presidential address. He talked about 
about um, uh, diversity and how that should be kind of a core value um, of uh, kind of the push in, in open science and best practices. Um, and then other people have, have talked about that. Then there was some kind of pushback, at least some of it that I saw on Twitter, where people were talking about like, okay, does diversity really need to be like a core value? Shouldn't we talk about like, you know, psychological research and, and practices and, and why are we focusing on diversity? And if we focus on diversity, will that cause problems and so on? So I think a lot of that is kind of like where we're coming from and, and where this has kind of started. Um, but I guess before we get into like focusing on diversity, because so much of this is related to open science, or at least the way that it's been framed in, in, in the way that we've talked about it so far, um, it's related to open science. I figured we should like talk about like, what do we mean by open science? Because I think sometimes some of the arguments that get um, discussed are, are focusing on things that have nothing to do with, with open science. And so when you guys think open science, what do you guys think of like what means what does it mean to have kind of like open science practices and so on i guess i just go back to transparency making it as transparent and available for as many people to see maybe verify if they're interested in but just doing transparent science um i'd add to that by saying that i think open access and open science should be delineated in some cases but um yeah that'd be the big thing so by open access meaning like publishing in journals that have open access or by paying the open access fees or both or what? I'm just against paying the open access fee. Okay. Like flat out. Like I, I don't think that that should be a thing. Yeah. I understand that maybe SciArchive and the other archive sites don't always function as well or might not have the same meaning outside of the open science community. But to me, I don't think that we should ever have to pay or expect people to pay to get their work out there. <laughs> I would say it's antithetical to open science to have to pay to do your research. Yeah. And I think that'll, I mean, we'll probably come back to that. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to get too yeah, far ahead. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, don't, I guess I have a fairly narrow view. Um, so when I think of open science, like my, my heuristic uh, for what open science is, I think of transparency specifically within the domain of your methods and your data. Um, right. I don't know if that's the, the right definition, but so when I think of open science, I'm thinking uh, it's clear that, you know, you're, you're clear about where your hypotheses came from and, and how, uh, and sort of when they came. Mm-hmm. Uh, you are clear about what you did um, in terms of your materials, your methodology, and you allow people to verify your findings by making your data available. And that, I mean, maybe that's too narrow a definition. I'm, I'm curious what you think, but I, I don't think of, so a lot of the, the debate around like uh, bro science, uh, bro open science, sorry, um, I think had like a larger definition for what open science is. And at least like heuristically, that that isn't part of my definition and not the like the world ought to go by by definition (laughs) right it's not the definition that i hold i mean i would add in the kind of open access though because i think that if the research that we publish and the findings are only open to people who can pay subscriptions to people who have a university affiliation that doesn't seem very open to me so so i think open access 
in but in many different ways, I think open access is kind of wrapped up in open science, at least to me. But but again, I don't think it has to always be for something to be open access. It doesn't always have to be us paying uh, you know right. subscription fee to get the gold access um, you know article. I think there are a lot of other either some journals. So like the Judgment Decision Making Journal is just an open access journal is paid for by the um, um, the membership dues to the to the um, society. And there are other um, uh, journals that are like that, or just having things um, preprints and so on. I think that all goes to just allowing uh, people outside of academia, people who don't have a university affiliation, access to the research. So I definitely agree with all the other things that you said, but I, 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 at least for me, I kind of add that in there. Yeah, and I, I'm not opposed to that sort of broadening. Uh, it's just not part of my sort of heuristic representation. Right. I would broaden it even more. Um, and I, like, I, I include all of what you said in my definition. But I think one of the consequences of the open science movement, if you engage in open science practices, should be that there's now more conversation about your research. And with conversation comes the opportunity to be nice or to be not nice. <laughs> and, um, and the flip side is, um, I think of replication sort of in concert with uh, with open science and with replication, there's collaboration, right? There are efforts to get larger sample sizes. And so collaboration is now much more of a, I guess there are more sort of internal motivations to collaborate for certain, some people than there were. And, right. and we have to think about geographic, I don't know. Constraints. Variation. Yeah. Okay. Constraints and variation in who we're collaborating with. And so I, I guess I think of open science a little more broadly than just like my individual choices right. and which practices I'm choosing to engage in. Yeah. I mean, I think that, that'll, yeah, I think we'll get into some of that of whether it is available for right. other people. But yeah, I agree. Right. I can see that. He wants to disagree. No. I, no. <laughs> okay. Yes. Uh, no, I'm just confused. Like, so why? Why such a broad definition of, of open science? And, and I guess the critique would be a really broad definition of anything runs the risk of of defining itself out of having any type of meaning. So if you have like just this open science is everything definition, then again, like I don't really know what open science is. Um, but so why why such a broad definition? And doesn't that run the risk of defining itself into like it is all things? That's a good question. I think so the part about conversations, I think maybe it's not my definition of open science, but it's a consequence you have to consider. Oh, yeah, sure. I guess. So if I'm going to if and I want to, if I'm going to promote transparency and research, then I have to expect that others will be interested in seeking out information about my research. Mm -hmm. And so I think, I guess to me, your definition sounded very siloed. And so I'm thinking... You I mean think, precise? It sounds really precise. Ah, <laughs> boom. No, I meant siloed. <laughs> <laughs> it sounded... I mean, it's sort of like it's the generic gender difference of like interdependent and independent. Like it just sounded very much like 
old school, really. Mm-hmm. Like, even though it's open science practices, it was still like, I am a scientist who does my thing and it doesn't matter what other people are doing. And I'm pursuing this goal with a lack of consideration of implications or interactions. I mean, so I love that we have a podcast, uh, an audio format, because you can't see like me nodding like, yeah, that seems right. Uh, but I, no, I, I agree that like what you're bringing up are consequences yeah. of a definition, but they're not part of the definition. I guess that's where we, we disagree. Yeah. Uh, and so I do think that they are important to consider and yeah. to think about. But if you ask me, like, okay, define open science, well, yeah. it's this, for me, again, like yeah. this more narrow definition. But then what you're talking about, I think, yeah. falls out of that definition and then becomes really important. Right. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, in, you know, to kind of, I don't know if this is kind of along the lines of what you're saying, but I can imagine a situation where you think of open science and how I've been thinking about it before we started talking about it was more about open transparency with materials, data, access to the written kind of work that we have in description. But you could also think about open in terms of inclusive, open to many different people. And then if we... Okay. And willingness to share. Like, I'm open to sharing. Yeah. Which means I'm open to discussing. Yeah, discussing, right. collaborating, kind of like what you were talking about. Disagreeing, yeah. And in a civil way, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, so so the openness there is more in the, the inclusive aspect, which I hadn't really thought about before. So I could I can see that as maybe that should be a value of open science in general. And I can see importance in bringing that into the definition as well, because if you said, okay, we've got open science here, and then we have inclusivity and diversity issues over here that stem from this, it's going to be really easy for people to say, no, I'm in the open science camp and ignore, right? It's just another another divide, us, yeah. us them sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. And I think so, we can walk and chew bubble gum at the same right, time. Right, right, right. I, I don't know that I buy the argument argument that like, well, we have to keep this sort of laser-like focus on this sort of uh, siloed uh, open science pieces because if we broaden a definition, it means like we won't do either of those things well. Like, I, I don't know right. that I buy that type of argument. Yeah, not at all. I, I think what the way I'm thinking about this, like kind of across perspectives now, uh, this may not be the way I was thought about it, thinking about it before, but um, it seems like if we tackle the issues that have been systemic in psychology, right, bad methods have been one of those. But there's also the old white guy problem in psychology. And if the motivation through our broad term of open science is to correct some of these problems and problematic practices, that's one of them. And I could see how, you know, that would fit. I don't know if that made sense. No, yeah. 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 And that's where I, I was... Because coming into this, I think there is a distinction between like best practices and open science practices, because I don't right. know that like open science practices are necessarily um, encouraging like, I don't know, larger sample size or something like that. That doesn't to me doesn't feel like open science, but that's still best practices. Right. I mean, obviously, so it's a whole thing of like, I think open science is best practice, but not all best practices are kind of open science things. But it, that's a whole thing of like, but what do we consider? Like, where are those? you know that those circles those overlapping circles you know where are they and if it's about kind of correcting issues that we've had in the past making things more open and inclusive can definitely be a way of addressing those issues and and i think that could fit again in in some definitions that can fit in that kind of open science realm yeah yeah another thing i keep going back to and this, this is the reason why i said transparency is a big part 
for me at least, of open science is removing researcher degrees of freedom. Mm -hmm. And I think some of those researcher degrees of freedom come with privilege that's been kind of built into our our incentive structure and everything like that. So maybe with that definition, it would kind of allow for both of those things to exist under the same Mm -hmm. umbrella. Well, that kind of leads into what I was thinking about, like, well, what are some ways that open science could... um, uh, like in some ways like backfire so you know you kind of uh, one thing that we might want to do is remove um, you know kind of researcher degrees of freedom or remove um, people's ability to I don't know exert their own biases well let's say like things like um, open peer review so if I sign my peer review does that now bring in opportunities for people to kind of bring in their own biases um, so somebody who is, you know, from a, um, um, depending on their particular background or coming from a small university or, um, you know, gender differences or, or ethnicity differences, if they're signing their, their peer reviews, that's open, that's transparent, hooray. But now is it possible that the people who are reading those peer reviews are going to devalue it because of the, um, the kind of openness? So is it possible that this openness could bring in some of these issues? So what do you mean that, that, so by signing the review, if the person might be devalued because of something about their demographics mm-hmm. or, okay, so I'm just yep. trying to get clarity. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, you know, we all know that people from App State do terrible research. So if we sign our uh, peer reviews and they're like, oh, that's just a guy from App State. Let's, let's not worry about that. Obviously that's facetious, but, you know, things like, you know, um, women or um, uh, kind of, of color. people of color um, in, you know, depending on the particular area, some areas might be much more problematic than others. So, um, Twilight, I think you had mentioned, like, in um, math, mathematics, um, you know, if there's a um, woman, um, you know, uh, peer reviewer, that that might be even more, um, kind of receive more bias than, than in other areas. And so there that being open, being more transparent might actually cause people to devalue. So there it's like, you know, maybe blind reviews would be better, but technically that's closed. That's not open. So I I don't know that I actually disagree, but what if... uh, (laughs) I don't disagree, but I'm going to disagree. No, I mean, I I don't know that I I, like conceptual, like in principle disagree, Uh but thinking about like the practicality. So... The editor mm-hmm. uh, who invites all the reviewers mm-hmm. knows the identity of all the reviewers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in that sense, the the decision is never blind, and the editor is right. the ultimate arbiter mm-hmm. of whether or not a paper will go further or, or not. And so if you sign your review uh, or not, the author can be like, oh, that's a person that I don't value, and so I'm not going to listen to that. But like that's foolish on the part of, like, the author can make that decision, but like the author's opinion about that person doesn't actually matter because the editor is the ultimate like enforcer and the editor has always known the identity of the reviewers yeah I mean I I see what you're saying but at the same time I think that we can approach reviews in very different ways I mean there are some reviews that I read and I you know I might try to say like well maybe I'm wrong maybe their review is actually pretty good and I'll try to incorporate that and use that or I can kind of push back and I'm going to create my own argument for why that particular review is wrong yeah but you do that at your peril like the editor might say like I think you're full of crap right but I mean presumably I construct a wonderful argument as to why I'm right or wrong I think 
think I think I, at the extremes, I totally agree with you. At the extremes, yes, there are going to be times where it does not matter who this review is coming from. The editor is going to view it in a in a kind of more um, reasonable way. But I think that there are a lot of times where the editor maybe isn't a hundred percent sold on this critique or not. And I think that the the um, partly it's our job when we're writing the the response to the reviews is to try to convince the editor why this isn't a particularly damning uh, um, issue that the reviewers are bringing up. And I think that there are going to be times where we might take a different approach depending on who's writing it. Again, I'm not saying it's a huge problem. I'm just saying, obviously, if there are blind reviews, it can't be a problem because there's no way to know who this person is. Whereas if it's open reviews, it's potentially a problem. I would say similarly, people have talked about, um, you know, if you um, have open reviews, especially for early career researchers, that is there going to be some kind of a pushback where, oh, you write a ba- wrote a bad review about me, then I'm going to write a bad review. And then there, now we're looking at different biases, issues that are coming up. Yeah. Is I, that a problem? I haven't necessarily seen it. Could it be a problem? 100%. I feel like it could be. Yeah. That that critique on open review, I, I agree with the sort of tit for tat ne- negative exchange. But I don't know that I agree with the other of you, but like Twilight, you're you're making you're making a face. So. I don't. I it's maybe it's just cutely naive of you <laughs> to, to think that the same like like why would the same kind of biases that apply to ECRs not apply to women or people of color or other marginalized groups no so I, I agree that all of those biases that, that could apply to ECRs but uh, could apply to um, other populations as well in the sort of like tit for tat you wrote a bad review of me I'm gonna like get you back okay. like I agree you just think the I think you're giving editors a lot of credit that I yeah, yeah. I mean, because I, I guess I guess I have I have some faith in editors. I think the main thing is he's just saying that he's never experienced stereotyping, so now stereotyping doesn't exist. I'm just kidding. If the argument is yeah. that a blind review is superior to a signed review because it means that the blind review the authors are going to take more seriously, I'm saying it doesn't matter how seriously the authors oh. take it or not because if they don't take it seriously, the editor is going to decide like you didn't take this seriously I'm rejecting you and like the default for most editors I feel like for most papers is convince me that this should be in rather than like convince me that it should get kicked out so I think that if authors want to be they want to be assholes and decide like I'm not going to take this this woman or this person of color seriously I think they do so at their peril and maybe that means that like fewer assholes get published which I'm also fine (laughs) see see, I would say I think more assholes get published because I mean there's a lot of people who talk about a lot of assholes. There are a lot of assholes. <laughs> and there are a lot of people who talk about like when a paper gets rejected, what do you do with that? How many people actually go and then write a letter to the editor saying, I don't think you should have rejected this. Here's why. And you kind of you know um, complain yeah. back. Apparently there are status differentials in that sort of thing um, where, you know, obviously people who are farther along in their career, typically, you know, older white men um, more likely to do that. Whereas early career researchers and people of color, women less likely to do that. But how many and, times is it convincing? Like, it, it doesn't matter how many times yeah. people do it. What you care, like, does it actually have greater, more than, more than zero? I guarantee you it's more than zero. Well, I guarantee it's more than zero. But, so, like, is it one? Because, like, one. No, I don't mean, yeah, we don't know. But I've, I've heard of people doing that yeah. and it being successful. So, but again, but I don't know the base rates, yeah. obviously. 
I also would add that there are reputational concerns. So like, even if, you know, the, the reviewer sign, if the reviewer signs their review and then everything goes smoothly, there is still a fear in signing the review that they will not. So for example, I did a review, I don't know, a few months ago that I was brought in solely to review the statistical analyses and, um, and I hesitate, I signed it in the end, I hesitated to sign the review because I felt that um, if the if the author who I don't know decided that I was full of shit, that they could start telling other people that I'm full of shit, and now I have a reputation for being full of shit. And so there are reputational concerns that are a problem in addition to the consequence of that particular review and whether the author decides they want to negotiate or dismiss yeah. your comment. Well, I think yeah. that's a good point because then that might go beyond the editor themselves. Yeah, yeah. But, but that gets back to the sort of like worry about retribution. So there's sort of like two yeah. worries that are, are being outlined. Yeah. One is signing the reviews means that some people get taken less seriously by authors. The other review, uh, the other uh, worry is some type of reputational or uh, form of retribution that might come up. I agree mm-hmm. about like the reputational concerns or like the fear of retribution. Like that, I think is is a legit or set of concerns uh, around signing reviews. The other about whether or not authors are going to take people seriously, I'm less worried about mm-hmm. because I think people who just decide, like, I'm going to ignore what that reviewer has to say, it's not a good strategy for getting your paper yeah. accepted. So I don't... Oh, good, sorry. I, I just... I think you're not giving smooth talk enough credit. Like, people can disagree and make it sound pretty and if someone's on the fence then they are going to potentially you know fall in line with the the other maybe i just don't have have enough like late career status (laughs) like my my experience is that it doesn't work it does not work um that if you don't like your fancy arguments, the editor will come back like, yeah, but they asked for more data and you gave me a fancy argument and like, give them the data that they demanded, you jerk. So, <laughs> yeah. I don't know if this is, this is kind of a slight aside, but um, on a episode, uh, um, a Black Goat podcast episode, I don't, that was from a while ago, um, Samin was talking about um, reviewing articles for different journals and how there were some um, uh, journals that she would, was referring or um, reviewing for, kind of like um, you, Twyla, where, where she was brought in for like one specific specific um, kind of aspect. And if I'm remembering correctly, which I might not, um, she had originally said something in her review of like, well, I'm not an expert in this area, but here, let me tell you about the rest of the areas. And then how the um, editor asked her to pull that information out of don't say you're not an expert in this one area, because then that will cause people to kind of devalue the, the review as a whole. And so that's what the editor is asking her to do. I can imagine situations where even if people don't actually say that information just by virtue of who they are, again, whether women, people of color, the location that are coming from, whatever it is, how that could have similar 
um, kind of effects where people might devalue it. And again, even there, that's like an editor saying, don't do that. Again, it's a little bit of a different context, yeah. but I think it is a concern that other people do have. I, I don't deny that people might have the concern. <laughs> but how, yeah, what's yeah. the effect size? Yeah. Uh, of. So, yeah, yeah I, I just, I think that the larger worry is along the reputational and, and retribution yeah. lines. Like, I think if we want to be worried about signing reviews, I think that that is a much more direct argument to make for people considering whether or not to, to sign reviews. Mm-hmm. Um, I have had a couple of, of people like sign their reviews for stuff um, um, of my work, and it's actually made me like them more mm-hmm. uh, than I'm like, I, one, really respect that you signed this review, uh, and now I want to be your friend, and two, uh, wow, now I know like who said like these really smart things that totally took apart my paper. <laughs> um, and and I think that like signing reviews is something that can have really so we haven't talked about any of the positive side effects mm-hmm. that it can provide a really important backstop between um, or, or it can provide an important backstop from people just being like nasty in their reviews yeah. uh, now I don't it's not a perfect solution but yeah. uh, I think that if you know that you were on the hook for what you're going to say and like reputational concerns like pop up you might be less you might be like 30% less douchey uh, and that would be I think a net gain for the field yeah, I would say that would have uh, only for the people who does that matter who that matters for so if you're a late career researcher you're not going to care about being douchey because nothing is going to matter I no I, I think like late career people like they still care about their reputations they want to still be seen as uh, i mean they're not dead uh they have egos <laughs> i think some do but but g- given the the um limited experience of the reviews that come from late career versus early career researchers. Late career researchers, um, it's a generalization, uh, but we'll write like a paragraph and be like, meh, it was good. Here's this, that, fix this. Um, Whereas early career researchers will spend like, you know, eight hours crafting this, you know, three page review and everything. So I don't know that the... I think we're reasoning from a really small sample size. Well, of course. more data. Yeah. Yeah. So we should, you know, um, we should, we'll put a poll out that asks people, how douchey do you care about being? (laughs) And would you care if it exceeded, you know, seven on a 10 point scale? Well, so, so to put, to put like a fine point on this, um, I got asked to do a review. So after this person signed their review, I said, you know, I think I, I I was really inspired by that. And I think that this is something important to do. Now, the fact that I'm coming up on tenure, I think also bears on that uh, a little bit. Uh, so I'm, I'm planning on, on signing this review. And it, it's a paper that I think is like really good. It has lots of things to like. There are also a number of things to be critical about. And like many papers are, you know, a paper. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as I've been writing my review, it has provided a different type of frame for mm-hmm. being really to being more careful. Uh, like I always try to be careful in my reviews, but just being careful about how I'm framing things so that I'm, I'm clear about like what exactly it is that I'm critiquing and, and making sure that things don't come off mean-spirited where I am offering what I think is like a major flaw in the paper or yeah. something like that. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm pro-signing reviews. Uh, I found that as well. When I sign my reviews, I make an extra effort to be 
thoughtful, but make sure the tone is respectful. Yeah, tone. Yeah. Tone is, is it. Like, I, I, I try to be way more careful about my tone. Yeah. Why? So, oh, sorry, go ahead. So these are all reasons why I sign my reviews, and I've been doing it for some time now. But I don't say, like, everybody must do this because I realize there's consequences. Yeah. Um, but I started doing it to make myself a little more constructive in my feedback, mm-hmm. but also to avoid doing things like just shortening the reviews. Because I caught myself before I started signing my reviews doing things like, this is known in the literature, go figure it out. Mm-hmm. And now I'll actually give the people the steps and stuff like that. So it's it's making sure that it's, it's yeah. it, the way I see it is it's almost like the feedback I would give my thesis student as they're working on their perspectives or something like that. Um, but I realize it's not for everyone, but for me, it fits within the goal. But if you're a good person, you'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> message message well, received. See, see, I'm trying to figure out why you guys are all jerks if you're giving anonymous feedback. <laughs> Like, why the hell is it that you need to be held accountable to just, like, why don't you just give civil feedback and even if you don't sign a review? Oh, not uncivil. (laughs) But, like, if you're doing a whole bunch of reviews, like, you might, you know, we have other draws on our time. And so, like, that last check of, like, you know, I could tighten this up or I could actually provide, like, here's how I think you could fix this. Um, Those types of directions, I feel like I would be more willing, or we'll find out, uh, to, to provide that more constructive feedback that Chris is talking about in in the case where I'm signing it. For me, I don't know if it's so much like being uncivil, it's just being short. Like, like, this is incorrect. That doesn't do anything for anybody. Whereas when I start signing my reviews, I'll I'll go into a little more detail about it. Maybe I'm a bad person for not (laughs) being able to do that without that motivation, but... No, I found myself in the same boat where I... I think my reviews are actually a little longer yeah. now. Might have definitely gotten um, longer. And I like go out of my way to add citations mm. and things of that nature, which I didn't do before. I just said, there's stuff on this. Yeah. Go, go find this stuff. Yeah. Well, someone did something on <laughs> this. Yeah. Yeah. Go for it. Go search on yeah. Psych Info. Right. Go find it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, but I wouldn't prescribe that to everybody. Yeah. I think there's some folks that there's just absolutely no case where they could sign their reviews. Like yeah. grad yeah. students in yeah. general, I think, yeah. Yeah. fall into that category. I think it's also like a good sort of backstop from people who are like write an anonymous review. Like, well, you've ignored a huge literature by like this person, eight papers by me. me yeah, like, so yeah. like all of the self-citation crap that, that often happens with anonymous reviews. I think this would be, I mean, you could still do it. But yeah. It's kind of like a little more obvious. Yeah. yeah. I think you've really missed out on all of this work by exactly me. Yeah. That might yeah. be true, but maybe people would be a little bit more conservative. Again, 30% less douchey. That's, there we go. That's your role. That's all I'm aiming for. 30%, 30%. less douchey. Right. This should be a new app. <laughs> Guide to be 30% less douchey in your everyday life. Nice. It's like the 10% happier, but yeah. 30% yeah, less exactly. douchey. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. And I bet you if you're 30% less douchey, you would also be 10% happier. That's true. That could be. So mindfulness is everything. Yeah, that's true. Or we should be against it. I don't know. Yeah. Um, So we, uh, this is a bad reason not to sign our reviews. But um, so recently got a review. I think I know who it is because it's a relatively um, small area that 
of people who were like reviewing all these papers, and I think I know who it is, but it was not a really good review. And some of the criticisms that were brought up just kind of missed some of the like obvious things that we said in there. And, and obviously, I we've gone back and maybe we weren't as obvious as we thought we were or whatnot. Um, but in a weird way, I'm kind of glad I don't know is this person because I really like the person. Uh, but is the person? But I still think it's that person. But I'm not sure. So I'm like, but if I knew it was that, maybe if I knew it wasn't the person, then I'd be even happier. But but if I knew it was that person, I think it would really like color my perception. Um, so I don't know. Like, but I really like this person. So I, I kind of hope it's not. So do you maintain know. your liking of the person, even though you because there's the uncertainty. I'm like, oh, okay. I could be wrong though, because I don't want to jump to conclusions. So it hasn't maybe it's actually not. changed your perception of that. I don't. Maybe like it's only changed it like ten percent. Okay. But if I knew it was this person, then it would really okay. you know color my perception gotcha. of this person. Yeah. But but that was just a one off. So yeah. So just write good reviews. <laughs> you don't have to worry about that. Yeah. I don't know. Are there other, so, I mean, we talk about re, um, reviews, but like with other um, open science practices, I think there are other ways that people could be, um, that it could, I don't want to say backfire, but it could cause problems. So sure. um, like Chris, you talked about um, uh, um, open access mm-hmm. um, journals. So typically, oh, not always, but open access journals um, are going to be lower, like impact factor, um, not as as widely read, which is kind of ironic because right. they're, they're open access. Lower prestige. Lower prestige. Yeah. That's yeah. a better way of putting it. Um, and so it could that could actually hurt people if they're like, no, I want my stuff out there. So then they start publishing in, in open access journals. I think that could be a, a problem as well. Well, again, especially for kind of more early career researchers or people who are kind of working from a disadvantage to start. Or smaller universities. Smaller universities, yeah. Yeah, yeah so I think money is obviously a huge barrier there, mm-hmm. right? And often people are coming out of pocket for that, right? As was mentioned in that, open science isn't for everyone article. Mm-hmm. Um, but another, and this might be selfish, I guess, in a way, another thing that keeps motivating me to make this distinction is that I've heard people like cross those streams as well. So the people that are against paying for publishing are also against open science practices because they see the word open and they think it's the same. Uh, and I've heard people say things like, oh, you shouldn't do that. But they're, they're coming from that framework of, of open access. Hmm. Um, so that's another reason why I wanted to make that clear. But I don't know if that gets us to talking more about like how it's problematic for some people and how the can be an issue. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. I, I, cause I was wondering, like thinking about like open science, if it's kind of like an all or nothing type thing, like it right. does sort of feel like either you're doing everything open or you're against open access, open, I mean, sorry, open science. So, um, but yeah, that's an interesting case that you're bringing up. Yeah. Maybe we can put that aside because I think you're hitting on a bigger point. And yeah. it's something that to me, when I was reading these articles and looking through Twitter about some of this stuff, and I'm a white male, so maybe I'm, I'm blind to some of this, but I have never heard someone in the open science community say it's all or nothing. Every time I've heard someone present something on open science, it's been, here's a few different practices find what fits for you and go with that. And I think that's what that article, Open Science for Isn't for Everyone, ended on. They said, you yeah. know, maybe we need to think about who yeah. can implement what things. And I think that's the way I've always heard it. So to me, yeah. it, it's... I've seen people criticize, even though somebody, like, let's say, posts their materials. I've done this, where somebody posts their materials, but not their data. And I was like, well, I mean, I guess that's okay that you posted your materials, but where the hell's the data? Mm-hmm. Right. I, I mean, now, 
reflecting on my own behavior. I should not have had that perception. It should be like, thank goodness you're at least posting your materials. That right there is a step above what people were doing 10, 15 years right. ago. But I've definitely had that gut reaction. I and mean, again, maybe I'm a jerk, but most other, I would imagine there are other people who have had that kind of like, you know, you, it's, you got to do everything. It's the data, yeah. it's the materials, it's the, um, you know, journal, it's the this, it's the that. Um, but, but again, maybe that's just me. Yeah. I, I just think that's for a vast majority of people going to be unachievable. Oh yeah. You know, like you, it can't be all or nothing. Totally. I, I do relationship research and no matter how much we de-identify that data, a couple can find each other. Yeah. You know, yeah. or if you're working with a sensitive population. Yeah. Like, so I, I don't think that's achievable except for maybe like a small group of people. Yeah. So. I think, so I agree with you, Chris, that anytime I hear people talking about the open science movement, they right. do say you can pick and choose and that it's not all or nothing. Mm-hmm. But then you see people talking about individual reviews. Right. or individual projects and they're griping yeah. that so-and-so hasn't shared their data or so-and-so didn't have their code or whatever the case might be. And so there's a, and, you know, a community, whatever that means, can't yeah. control all of its members. Yeah. And so I, like, I understand that, but I think that like, and I don't know, I don't know how to say this. I've hesitated to say it, but I think that for people who are already marginalized, mm-hmm. I would imagine and I'm white, so I only have late, <laughs> but I'm also a woman. And so I feel like for, for people who are already marginalized, there is a hesitation to take what might be seen as risks. Yeah, right? right, right. And so, like, I can sit here and listen to you white men tell me, like, oh, if you sign your review, I'm going to I'm gonna right. listen because I don't want to risk getting my article rejected. And that sounds great, but you've had experiences where you've signed some of you where you've signed reviews and it's all worked out fine and you've had a lot of other experiences in your life that it (laughs) seemed to have worked out fine (laughs) so uh, you I think are more willing to take those risks Mm -hmm. yeah I I think that that, that's a fair critique Um, the sort of confidence of the white male like it'll be fine because it almost always is Um, I think think that that's fair I did think about whether we should like just start this whole episode with like giant disclaimers of Four you know, white people. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And you know, three white, you know, males who are about yeah. And I think that's gonna obviously color all of our perceptions <laughs> of everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean there's stuff on Twitter too that's like I've seen memes like when you ask a clinician to share their data and it's like someone running away and like a crowd following them and stuff like that. So like, it is interesting that although we hear these things, there seem to be people that are maybe not enforcing norms, but are are trying to kind of push in the other direction. I think that's where the bro open science thing came from too. Yes. Yeah. So I, I'm always, I'm generally skeptical of online communication, especially Twitter. Um, is do you think that this is a legitimate gripe that someone is raising, like they 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 really mean it, or is it virtue signaling? Um, because I, I think it's hard to pull those two things apart, especially on Twitter. I imagine right. like a lot of this is virtue, like virtue signaling in this case, in which. But I I, I don't follow that aspect of academic Twitter because I want my Twitter to be a happy place. (laughs) So like I'm there for people posting their papers and it's like for me like Twitter Twitter is a deeply happy place for me and I want to keep it that way. Yeah. 
I, I hear what you're saying. And when I was looking over all the broken science tweets and kind of looking through all of that, I felt like someone wandering into a conversation. And I don't, I don't know where some of these tweets started. It seemed like things happened in person, maybe offline, or these are trends that people have seen offline. So I think being careful and cautious about what you read on Twitter is fair in that regard. This is maybe a heuristic as well, but there's there's a magnitude of these things. So it also seems to lend credence to what's going on. Um, and I heard that some things happened at SIPS this past year that were kind of iffy. Um, and there were statements made through SIPS in an email about that. So those things would lend some credence to it. But you're right. I think often these things can kind of spiral off away from where they originally started. But yeah, so so I agree with that. I think they're, they're like kind of two things that I keep thinking like one is the people who are bringing up a lot of these kind of issues so kind of the broken science stuff and whatnot it's like okay those people I mean if they're like assholes they'd be assholes regardless of whether there's an open science push or not so maybe these people just have a different area the bros not the people bringing stuff up just to no, no, yeah yeah just yeah, be clear yeah, yeah. so, okay, so right. the bros the people who are just the like the modifier was unclear yeah sorry sorry right. who are, who are um, you know um, uh, the tone is not what, uh, right who are um, just kind of being disparaging, who are um, kind of just talking about this idea of like diversity and inclusiveness as if it's like stupid and why are we even focusing on that? That, that, that those folks, like they're just, you know, assholes anyway. But... I would say, like, I think that some of this open science stuff, and, and especially if we're viewing it, or at least some people are viewing it as kind of either all or nothing thing, that it does give people a lot of, I don't know, fodder. It gives people a lot of ways of criticizing different different research, different, um, you know, people coming from um, different areas. So, right. So a lot of open science started in, in social personality and certainly it's expanded well beyond that now, but a lot of it started there. And, the, and even things like the way the pre-registration form is set up was very dict- or very um, geared towards the type of research that we do. And so there are going to be people from, let's say, you know, even if we're talking, not talking about gender differences or ethnicity differences, we're talking about different areas of psychology that they, they, don't have as much access to some of these things, or you're talking about like relationship research where you just can't post the data all the time. And now we just have like some of these people have this like new kind of, I don't know, toolkit in order to start, you know, bashing these other research disciplines that just don't look like what they think it, it, it should look like. I think that could be problematic. And again, that's not open and inclusive if they're not willing to accept that there are different areas that have different um, kind of expectations or different requirements, depending on whether they can even, you know, de-identify data or whether they can kind of share things in the same way. Yeah. Yeah. I think we need some of those criticisms because so far what we have with the open science movement isn't a universal salve for everything. And I don't think that most folks within that group are saying this is it, but I think what's happening in some cases, you're right. It's just, it's kind of ending at that. It's like, this is wrong or I can't do this. So it's, it's bad. We need to be thinking about other solutions and thinking about how to broaden this. And, you know, we're dealing with decades worth of of problematic practices in the field. It's going to take just as long, if not longer to, to solve that. 
Yeah, one thing that I've, I've been really impressed by, to just take a different break, uh, with the open science movement is that it's been largely successful at avoiding a sort of moralization right. of sort of open science practices. And, and like it, some of these fights are around um, people maybe starting to moralize it a little bit. And so right. I think one, one challenge is open science becomes sort of, as it continues to expand, is to fight against like the tendency to prize like ideological purity in right. this case uh, and the, the sort of like all or nothing like you were not you were not pure enough at your open science you only shared your materials but not your data and, and I think like broadly the, the movement has done pretty well to say like it's not a one size fit all uh, it can be different things to different people sort of choose your own open science adventure uh, and I, I think that that I think like the open science movement should get a better credit for that because that is not that was not a foregone conclusion that it would go right. that way and also like I don't know that it's even like the default human conclusion I think that like something like this would lend itself extremely easily to moralizing and and so like the fact that it hasn't I think is is laudable yes I I like I don't want to say like 100% disagree but like I, I, I definitely 99 I definitely agree that there are people who are advocating for that but from the discussions that I've had and from things that I've seen admittedly on Twitter which I know is not a representative of everything um, but Twitter's not real life it's <laughs> not yeah but and that, I mean that's actually a different you know uh, uh, topic. Topic. Yeah. but but I I've seen instances of that where people basically say, well, if you're not doing open science, you're not doing good research and you're now a terrible person because of it. Now I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but, but certainly people coming down and having negative impressions of, you know, researchers from different areas who don't embrace it. So like developmental research, even clinical to some extent hasn't embraced some of the open science stuff. And then some of the pushback that that's happened and some of the little one-off comments and kind of like what you were saying earlier, Chris, about, you know, clinical psychology just not sharing data and whatnot and just little one-offs that I don't think those are um, all entirely innocent. I think that those little things can kind of add up. Again, I, I, I agree with with the statement that, that people, certainly many people have advocated, this is what it should be. It shouldn't be mm-hmm. some sort of a um, kind of moralizing, you know, virtue and, you know, these are the good people, these are the yeah. bad people. Certainly that is being said. Yeah. But I also think that it's, you know, uh, there are issues and I, I do see people kind of creating this divide of like, these yeah. are the good researchers, these yes. are the bad. Oh, yeah. yeah I, I, sorry, I, I want to be clear. Like, I'm not totally Pollyanna-ish right, about right. this. Yeah. Like everyone is, I'm I'm fifty percent. Uh, yeah, but but I think like yeah, the, the people who sort of get credited for uh, leading the movement, I think, are really clear that mm-hmm. they don't want this to be a sort of yeah. moralized type of thing. Now, I, I think that it, it definitely happens. And to your point, yeah, people who are opposed to open science, I think they get a particular moral rap, and maybe we can debate like whether or not that's like valid or not. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, like different. Different disciplines have different constraints, as you said. So mm-hmm. I think just saying, like, because someone doesn't do it doesn't make them a bad researcher. Uh, but I think that the the sort of the zeitgeist is one uh, that's a little bit more like one size fits all than like seeking ideological purity. I guess I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm just optimistic. Yeah. <laughs> this is the Monroe is optimistic yeah. podcast. Well, should I mean should this idea of 
diversity, whether we're talking about diversity in terms of, you know, gender, ethnicity, or kind of what we were just talking about, just different areas of psychology, should that be like a core value of the open science movement? Or is that something that's different? Is like, well, there's diversity over here on the right and there's open science over here on the left. Or should those be kind of tried to achieve simultaneously? Like that should be a core value of the open science movement is diversity. I think that's where the open science hashtag is kind of is starting and why it became such a thing. Um, I think it was a reaction to some people moralizing aspects of okay. open science. And then if you carry that forward, you realize that that's going to push people away. That's going to marginalize people that are maybe already marginalized even further. And it's ultimately going to detract from the science. Okay. So I, I think that's where much of this sentiment on Twitter is coming from. It's saying, yes, this needs to be a, a big part of it okay. because of these reasons. And if we're not mindful full of that, it will just become another a hoop, another hoop that people have to jump through. And some people are already at a place where they can jump through that hoop a little bit easier. So, sorry, sorry, yeah, sorry, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, it's fine. I think science is better if the people we study are diverse and the people who are doing the studying is diver- are diverse. And so... I mean, I don't know if that means it's a core value of the open science part in terms of transparency, but I want to put it somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <right>. So, <laughs> um, and I also think that we we run the risk of just doing what we've always done. If we, I guess, if we say that it's not a core value of open science, we run the risk of doing what we've done historically in our field and other fields, which is continuing to have, you know, ninety percent white participants and, um, you know, weird samples. Weird samples, yeah. exactly. So, why not adopt it as a value? Yeah, I I completely agree. Um, so I would say initially when we when we planned this conversation, I I think my my starting point was saying like yeah these are two goals to hold in parallel, but like that they were actually like separate things. But through this conversation, I think I've actually gotten uh, turned turned around, and and I think. So my reasoning is to the extent that the open science movement is a movement that wants to build a more robust, replicable science, I think part of that has to be, or at least what I've been convinced uh, uh, today, uh, part of that has to be having a more diverse mix of researchers and and also participants because the types of questions that we're going to ask are going to be different if we have a more diverse field the types of methodologies, the, the types of things that we find interesting are going to be more uh, robust and diverse if we have a more diverse group of, of researchers. Um, and the thing that I was thinking about, Twyla, as you were talking, was I uh, this last year, not this current year, but the last academic year, uh, about a quarter of my sample, or a quarter of my sample, a quarter of my lab um, uh, was made up of trans individuals. And that was an interesting experience for me as a researcher. Um, 
having like as someone who's cisgender um and all of a sudden i found myself just thinking about these issues a whole lot more uh an issue like sets of issues and research questions that you know i found interesting but like didn't rise to the level of like yeah we should we should go after that because it's really really important uh, and so i think if we get a more diverse set of researchers we're going to get a better science that's going to ask better questions so i i'm i'm fully convinced by twilight's point we got to have these as these are central goals that have to be uh interlocked together yeah i would, I would agree with both sentiments that you said like you know two weeks ago i would have said like oh no these are both values but they're kind of independent and now through kind of thinking about this thinking about the episode reading through um Sanjay speech and then our discussions here a lot of it's like oh yeah no I could see how that makes a better science not just like oh well you know we want diversity hooray it's like no that actually is is better for the questions that we're going to be asked I mean there are going to be questions that just we are not going to think of and that other people coming from different backgrounds will think of that are worth investigating so yeah I think that I would agree so then the question becomes, what do we do? <laughs> so as Soylent Green for all full professionals. There you go. <laughs> so as um, Twyla um, pointed out, um, at least here, you know, different universities are different at, at here. Um, our department is fairly white. Fairly. Uh, fairly, like 100%. 100%. You know? um, so what do we do about how do we, how do you increase diversity? And there, I would say there are different levels. So we could think about increasing Tier one platinum diversity. No, no, yes. that's, that's not quite what I was thinking, to be clear. I was thinking different levels of our own research lab, graduate students that we could admit, and, and then faculty members. Some things I think we have more control over, some things I think we have less control over. So that's what I was thinking about with different not levels. Not like, you know, like architecture has LEED certification, this would yeah. be like woke certification. <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah, that was not. So what do we, I mean, I don't know, what, which do we want to tackle the, the hardest, which would be hiring first, or do we want to tackle the, the easiest, which would be our own research labs first? Sorry, I was so consumed by making a good joke. <laughs> anyway, yeah, what do we, how do we increase diversity at, at least here at, at a place like App State? Well, because I mean, Twyla, yeah. you, you had a great, I, yeah. Good. Yeah, I think the easiest, it, yeah, we have control over who we admit into our lab. Yeah. And the easiest thing for me, the personal decision that I've made that was inspired by someone who I wish I could cite on Twitter um, it, or a conversation among multiple people is that uh, I will not turn away students of color if they ask to be in my lab. And so in the past, I've used this just simple sort of lab is full, lab is not full yeah. <laughs> heuristic. And uh, now I've rethought that. And so uh, I have decided that I personally will not turn away people who are um, of minority racial groups or ethnic groups. Um, and that's an easy decision to yeah. make. For me, that's an easy decision to make. Um, the other stuff is harder. Yeah. And I, I thought about similar types of things in terms of my lab hierarchy. Um, so when you look at my lab, on the one hand, you're like, wow, that's, I mean, app is also just not a terribly diverse place. Yeah. But 
you might say like, wow, that, that's fairly diverse. You have uh, people of color. You your undergraduate population is uh, there is I think yeah one one male uh, and thirteen females in my uh, uh, lab right now. And so you might say so you've got like a huge gender skew. But then when you look at the upper tiers, uh, so when you look at like who are the graduate students and who's the PI, you've got a bunch of white men right now in in my lab. And that's something that I'm not really comfortable with. Um, you don't want, you want to be the only white man? <laughs> want to be at the top of that dog pile. <laughs> I want, to, want to, my privilege to be like loud and clear at the top. Yes. Yeah. Um, no. It's good that you're no. picking up on that yeah. pilot. But, but no, in thinking about, you know, for prospective grad students, if they, so my, my, I don't have a lab picture, which I should really get a lab picture, but I have I've, uh, pictures and, and bios for my, my grad students and if I think about someone who might be interested in working with me and they open up the website and they're asking, like, do I think I'd fit in here? Do I think that this would be welcoming? And they see, like, white dude, white dude, white dude, white dude. I think they would maybe, like, legitimately have questions about whether or not this is a, a welcoming lab at, like, the graduate level. And, and so I haven't come to, like a good uh, idea. Like, I, I have like my like really strong view that that uh, I, I've been yelled at for. That like, okay, just I'm not going to admit any more white men for the time being. Um, and I don't know if that's the right answer, but it's. I think that there needs to be like a really intentional equalizing, at least like for, for my lab is, is something that I care about. Again, because having an, uh, a lab where the people crafting the questions, where these people aren't terribly diverse, means we are going to limit the types of questions that we're going to ask, we're going to have blind spots, and we're going to do a worse science, uh, in addition to like it just being like the right thing to do. <laughs> yeah. And I will say, just to be Pollyannish for a second, our undergraduate population has become much more diverse yeah. Yeah. in the past few years. So I've been here 10 years, and it was not uncommon 10 years ago to have a class with zero people other than white folks. And, and now, <laughs> exactly, it's not exactly, uh, you know, fixed. The problem has not been solved. But I would say, I don't know if you feel the same way you've been here, Andrew Smith, (laughs) also a long time. Um, The attractive one, not the funny one. (laughs) Um, Now I do think that, like, I am confident that every class I teach will have a person of color, which I also feel uncomfortable with because I talk about race a lot, especially in my legal psychology classes, because I don't know if you've heard, but the legal system (laughs) is not functioning very well. And so, um, I don't know. I've I've noticed that change and just want to give some credit to the university. That hasn't trickled up, at least in our department. To go back to... um to like talking about our own labs. So, um, you know, trial a while ago, you mentioned, you know, the not turning away any people of color or any kind of ethnic minorities. And so that's something that um, definitely I've been um, thinking about as well in my own labs, because I think in the, in the past, it was very much like you said, it was just like, well, labs full or not, or, you know, like, hey, you got an A in my class, sure, you know, you did 
did terrible in my class, whatever, and not even thinking about like, okay, that that right there probably isn't a good indicator of how yeah. successful they're going to be in this research lab. And are they going to help bring, you know, new ideas like Monroe, you were talking about having different ideas. And, and so every person who's in the lab is the same as everybody else. That probably isn't that, that lack of diversity isn't going to be um, useful because obviously I'm going to be coming at something from, from one particular perspective. So I think that's actually helps me a lot, just kind of raising like awareness to thinking about other um, kind of ways, other criteria that we might use. But but like you're saying, I think that's easy with our own lab. I mean, with the like even easy, with easy, easy is easy yeah. easier. Yeah, relative right. to even with like grad students, then you know that becomes more challenging because one, we get you know um, kind of selection effects on who's actually even applying to mm-hmm. the programs, and then I mean, you know, do we? You know, arguing with other people on the, you know, on the um, in the faculty, other um, experimental folks, do we, you know, say like, well, I know technically this person is better, but you know, they have the last name Smith, so eh, they're out. And you know, I don't. I mean, that's that's going to be a little bit more challenging, I think. And then obviously even more so when we start talking about um, uh, new hires. That, like we said, if or um, Twilight, you said that if we, you know, rank order the, um, you know, the new hire based on whatever criteria we use and we got, you know, five white dudes up at the top, then do we just say like, eh, well, that's, you know, we can't have that. So let's go down in the pool. Or we just say like, well, that's what the criteria said. Or what do we do? I, I, I don't have the answer. That, that wasn't a rhetorical question. That's actually yeah. a real question <laughs> that I really don't know what the answer to that is. At the faculty level, I think we have to reconsider our criteria. And I think we have to acknowledge that no matter how we're ranking, well, at least based on the search committees I've been on, the way we're ranking them does not mean that number six, let's say it's, you know, five, mm-hmm. number six isn't fit for the job, right? right? Like yeah. number six is totally qualified for the position. Right. Yeah. And so we need, I don't know, I like, you know, they use the phrase holistic review at yeah. the, in different ways. And so I think we need to be willing to not just rank based on the criteria that we've used in the past. Mm-hmm. And that's a struggle for me because I've, I've heard other faculty members say, well, why would we, you know, interview this black woman when we have five other people who are more, more qualified? And I think that's a narrow definition of qualified. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it can, I haven't, I haven't been in that type of search situation, but I, I can imagine like the, it gets to some ethically trickle, tricky territory there. Uh, but I just have a hard time believing like given how many people are graduating from PhD programs uh, every year. Like, it cannot be the case that like the job market is like in this case. Like we're talking about like racial diversity, but like that white because we're talking about that. Um, so I. I don't know. My my view is like I think I think technically illegal. Uh, <laughs> uh, that like we should be like yeah no no we're we are we're just enforcing like a hard line. We are going to make our department more diverse, and if that means like we're not hiring white men, like great as a white man who like got hired. <laughs> so uh, I mean you know put that like little bit of possible hypocrisy there, uh, but. I I just think that we should really take a 
hard intentional stance. I personally am embarrassed that I work in a department that has all... I, I mean, I guess maybe once upon a time there might have been a person of color. I don't know the whole history of our department. But since I've been here, we've had one adjunct faculty member who was black and that's all I'm aware of and it's embarrassing yeah it is and I have I mean I've had comments from other people who have looked at our website and been like y'all are a bunch of white folks and we are we're a bunch of white folks we are and I mean and I don't think so like one counter for for app specifically would be like maybe you make like a geographical argument that if you look at the sort of demographics of Appalachia historically it is overwhelmingly Scotch-Irish and so there's a sort of demographic reason. I don't buy that argument. Uh, so in prepping for this, I'm like, I wonder what the uh, the racial mix of Howard University looks like. And like, spoiler alert, they are like the majority uh, of Howard University psych professors um, are African American, but they have a large contingent of uh, they have a white professor. Like they have a really diverse faculty. So I think like the geographic argument for App State is I, I don't think that flies. I don't think that you can make a sort of like historically, it's been the case yeah. uh, at App that, that works here. Especially knowing that most of the faculty move here. It's yeah. Not yeah. Like exactly. say, yeah, at least half the people are from pretty far away. Yeah. So, yeah. Right. So, yeah. So, I like that our solution so far is to like, yep, something's got to be done. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think... Uh, what we could do is say, look, uh, we have a number of retirements coming up and we are going to sort of maybe hold off on hiring for those lines until we have like three or four and then actually have like a concerted effort to hire a more diverse group so that you actually have a cohort. Because I think uh, like it would be particularly hard to be like the only person. Yeah. Uh, and yes. that, that would actually be something that we could do. Uh, wait for some of these retirements, hire for like three lines at a time like that would be a bit painful while we wait for some of these retirements i mean i'm not saying that we should off people but uh, <laughs> uh, i like my comments uh, but but i think then to say like we want to hire a cohort of more diverse uh faculty would be something that is is good yeah. And and at least at the university level, um, I think that there have been some yeah. successes with this in terms of increasing the, the diversity. I shouldn't say I think. I know that there have been yeah. many successes with this in terms of increasing the diversity of the, the, um, the faculty. So, you know, I, I think there are... <laughs> areas people that we could look to to see like well how have other people been successful what yes. have they done and whatnot so so maybe that's kind of the next step is to start really looking at you know areas programs that have been successful with this and i think we need to be careful about exactly how we're defining diversity too like we've talked about diversity specifically in the context of like racial diversity yeah. we haven't talked at all about like thinking about hiring decisions in terms of uh gender diversity uh differences in, in sexuality like things like that right like, and, I, I and international international yeah, yeah uh, as well so I, I would also say like when we consider trying to make that push, we should adopt a broad view mm-hmm. of like what it means to be diverse. Agreed. But I think it's a question of convincing our colleagues. Or you know, you know, just taking people out into a woodshed. And- <laughs> <laughs> That is uh, that is an option. Yes, I mean, you can uh, convince them that way too. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, I do think. Like, in seriousness, though, I, I do think that it's 
you know, there are multiple levels that we could appeal to the faculty members. One, just in terms of like, well, it's Threats the right. Threats and coercion. It's the right, yes, yeah. exactly. So if, that, if none of these other things work, then that's a problem. But no, but I mean, talking about like, one, it's the right thing to do, which I think you had mentioned, um, but also talking about some of the other things where we were saying that, hey, this actually might make things a lot better, that we're going to be coming at, at things in, in a um, kind of better, um, more informed way. And so we're going to do better science. And if that's what we care about, then we should also, um, there's research there for increasing diversity as well. And so I think that having multiple avenues might yeah. help. Do you? I get, I, I, I'm being very cynical today. <laughs> yeah. I've had a day of cynicism. Mm-hmm. But I guess I'm concerned that there is this idea, and I've seen it on Twitter, and we've all probably seen it in various ways. There's this idea out there that if we prioritize anything but... Uh, science and productivity and whatever, however we're defining it. Um, If we emphasize diversity, that we are de-emphasizing science. And that if we, so if we are ranking people by their scientific, I don't know, prowess, and it's only five white dudes who rise to the top, then we are devaluing science if we go for number six. So I think this is maybe one of the benefits then of like our place as a comprehensive university that we like we are all scientists, we all do research, but our jobs are more than just being yeah. scientists. And so when thinking about fit uh, and who you're going to hire, like they are a scientist, that's true, but they're also going to be a mentor. They're also going to be an instructor. They're also going to help with like student retention. Those are all things that that we care about. And so I don't think I. I I understand the critique, and, yeah. but I but I think that uh, this might actually be a place where comprehensive universities are better positioned than like an R one to sort of push for this because we can say like, we have a more well rounded or we have a more rounded uh, <laughs> approach, yeah. rounded somehow, well or not, uh, <laughs> uh, approach to how we think about who our faculty are. They're not just a list of like first author JPSB puds. They are right. also uh, X, Y, and Z. And that I think would maybe make it making the case a little bit easier for us that it, where yeah. it might not be as easy for other people. And I think the student retention argument is important because yeah. our undergraduate population has become more diverse yeah. mm-hmm. and they sit in classrooms where they don't see any representation. Yeah. Did you all see like the Twitter thread about like when was, uh, sorry, it was, it was oh, uh, yeah. like, when did you first have a, uh, in this case, like uh, uh, an African-American teacher professor oh, right, yeah. um, and um, so when, when did you have your I don't think second grade okay I don't think ever yeah I both my wife and I were in that category we're like holy crap no we've never not I had been. a principal yeah. or assistant assistant principal I mean still but like but no, yeah. yeah no assistant principals no teachers no college professors like it never never yeah. happened and I, I think that that is I mean in something that we should we should care about uh, for again like as you said student retention for seeing people as role models and having like more diverse sets of role models. I think that's a, a big point and also ties back to what you're talking about with not refusing people of various backgrounds because that also sets the tone of look you can do this mm-hmm. right you can you can be in the lab and you can do this research and that 
you know, carries forward. So I think those two things together could be pretty powerful. And it's something that is within our grasp. We hope. Yeah, yeah hopefully. I mean, I think that's, yeah. I mean, that takes a semi-optimistic way to end. I don't know if you guys have anything more to add, but, you know, we've talked about a lot of the negatives, but I think that, yeah, having that kind of optimistic view of there are things that we can do and it can change, hopefully, if this is kind of a value that we can all agree upon. And I think it should be. Yeah. It should be a value. Good job. Way to come around. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I credit this. Yeah. My heart has grown two sizes. <laughs> <laughs> now down to Whoville. Bahudore, everybody. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, why don't we go ahead and end? So thank you for um, listening to Marginally Significant, and we'll talk with you next time. Thank you for listening to Marginally Significant. We'd love to hear if you have comments, questions, or any feedback about today's episode. You can message us on Twitter at MarginallySig. Our email address is MarginallySig at gmail.com. And there's a contact form on our website, which is MarginallySig.com. However you contact us, we'll be sure to reply. Uh, if you're interested in supporting the show, we'd also love getting reviews on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. And finally, uh, you can post about the show on Twitter, Facebook, or any other other social media platform that you use. However you support the show, we really appreciate it. Thanks again for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.